So we are in the middle of a series um, called the Year of Biblical Literacy, and what we're doing, what we've done for the past five weeks or six weeks, four weeks, uh, is we've kind of tried to give the overarching narrative of Scripture. I believe that the Bible tells a unified story, and we've kind of split that unified story into six acts: um, creation, fall, um, Israel's promise, um, redemption with the story of Jesus. Uh, then the church, and then next week we'll end this little portion of the series on new create with new creation. Um, you don't want to. I think it's going to be really interesting, so you don't want to miss next week. Um, and then we're going to transition into doing diving a little bit deeper. We're going to spend three weeks in the book of Judges, and then we're going to look at some of the prophets, and then we're going to do a series uh, right after Easter called a Creative Minority, um, which I think is really relevant to where we kind of are in our country. How do we? How do we as a people of faith um, resist um, when we feel that there are things that go against what we believe? And so I think that's going to be really a unique series. So anyway, that's kind of where we're headed over the next few weeks. But we've been in this series, um, the story of God, looking at the overarching um, arc and, and narrative of Scripture. And today we're going to look at church, uh, which uh, it, it goes something like this. The story starts with creation and then the things fall apart with the fall, and then God calls Israel to be this redemptive people. And two weeks ago, we end with Israel, the redemptive people, really kind of falling apart. It, it, ends, um, it ends on a sour note. And then we, at, at the end of the, end of the book, is, if you saw the Grammys a couple weeks ago, uh, Chance ended it so well, he had this great line, the book doesn't end with Malachi, right? Like, so Malachi ends, the Old Testament ends, Israel is beginning to put back the pieces, they're rebuilding the temple, but they're just a shadow of their former self. And there's this hope and the longing for, for a Messiah, for someone to put everything back the way it used to be. And, and in many ways, they're longing for a return to the good old days, um, longing for a return to the Davidic reign, uh, the reign of King David. Um, and then Jesus comes on the scene powerfully. And so that's kind of where we've been um, over the past, the past few weeks. And, um, but what happens is when Jesus shows up, uh, his hopes and dreams or his fulfillment of their hopes and dreams doesn't look like what they expected it to look like, right? The way that what, what Jesus does, he is the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams that they've had throughout all these years, but, but it looks like, it looks very different than what they thought it was going to look like, which is so similar to our story. Often the things that God does looks different than what we expected it to look like. And, and, and we get a glimpse of, of God's vision, uh, what it looks like. We get a glimpse of this vision in Matthew chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 10. Um, Matthew 10, verse 7. This is a pivotal verse. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he is about ready to send them forth um, he's about ready to send them forth to proclaim the good news of what Jesus is up to in the world. And he says to this, this to them. As you go, proclaim the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is central, this idea that the kingdom of heaven has come near, that the kingdom of heaven has entered into the present is central to understanding um, the life and ministry of Jesus. But it's often something we gloss over and we don't fully comprehend. So I just want to take a second and kind of parse this verse a bit. Um, 
the word kingdom, the word kingdom, the word that's used here in the Greek is basileia, basileia. And, and kingdom is, is not a bad translation, but a kingdom is not actually a helpful translation for us because we don't really think so much in the terms of kings and kingdoms, or if we do, we think of like Queen Elizabeth, who's a figurehead. It doesn't really make sense for us. But, but what this word means, another translation, is the domain or the realm or the rule of God. And heaven, when, when heaven is used, we think of heaven often what we learned like in children's church, you know, this place with like gold streets and streams running with, I don't know, wine or something. And um, I don't know if that's in the Bible, but it sounds good. Um, I'm just, yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, so the, the streams of wine in heaven, it's, that's not what it is. It, it, is the, it is the realm of God. When, when, when heaven is used in the New Testament, what it's referring to is the realm of God. And so what it is essentially saying is the, the reign or the, the domain of God, the rule of God is entering into our present world. The rule of God, God's way of doing things in the person of Jesus and the people that he calls as his followers is entering into our very day. And in, in a world that doesn't talk much about kings and kingdoms, I think this is a helpful way of understanding it. And then Jesus sends his disciples out into the world immediately after this to proclaim good news, to heal the sick, and to free people from the powers that held them captive and the powers that keep them from li uh, living abundant lives. Then in Matthew 16, we're going to jump down just a few chapters. In Matthew 16, Jesus delves a bit deeper into this plan. Now, what's going on in this is Jesus is beginning to quiz his disciples. His disciples, all the way to the very end, don't comprehend fully what Jesus is up to in the world. It is the entire Gospels, right, from, from uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is essentially a story of people missing the point, which is which is comforting because the people that were hanging out with Jesus around the campfire that went with him everywhere still missed the point at times. Uh, and so Jesus, it, it, I think, understands that the disciples are, are not quite getting the point. And so he looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? What do you think I'm up to? Maybe there's even just a little bit of snark. Like, seriously, why do you think I'm doing all this, guys? And, uh, and, and they said, we read in verse 13, 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, referring to himself? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then, then Jesus finally puts it even more pointedly. Okay, great. I know what other people are saying. But who do you, who do you who hung out with me day after day, who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter, who, the, Peter who has so many shortcomings. Like at the end when Jesus is about ready to be crucified, what we remember about Peter is that he betrays Jesus, not once but three times. And Peter pipes up. He says, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah. The word Messiah is, you are the one we have been waiting for. You are the one who our hopes and dreams are fulfilled in. You are the one we've been waiting for, the Son, the living God. And this moment is the reason that Peter, who, it, whose life story is a, a story of brokenness and failure, 
is the reason he goes on to be one of the founders of the early church and the reason we remember him today because in spite of his his brokenness and his failures he gets who jesus is he gets that jesus is the fulfillment of israel's hopes and dreams he is the long-awaited messiah and jesus replies and i tell you you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hades will not prevail against you now the word church here is the word that's translated church here is used all throughout the rest of the new testament but church is a bad translation the word that's used here the greek word is ekklesia and church is translated in reverse right once the church exists someday they begin to translate this word church but it was actually a fairly common greek word that simply meant the gathering or the assembly and so jesus is saying that on this gathering on this assembly on this group of people on this community i will build my movement on this community i will build my movement and then the gates of hades we often translate hades in some of your bibles i'm guessing it translates it as hell that's that's not like there are words that are translated hell hades is not actually the closest translation and and this is if you go check like a, a greek dictionary this is this is true the closest translation is the neither world the underworld which i think is kind of cool those of you are like into science fiction or stranger things right the the underworld the world of darkness or another some translations say death or chaos or sheol right the deep which i think has implications even for what's happening in genesis 1 and 2 right when god creates what does he do he pulls back the darkness and the chaos and here he says the gates of Hades or the gates of the underworld, the dark world, the underside of our worlds will not prevail. Jesus said, I am beginning a movement of people who are empowered, he'll say in a moment, who are empowered by my spirit, and the gates of darkness will not prevail against them. And Jesus says, on this gathering, this group, community of people, I will build a movement and the forces of chaos, the forces of the underworld will not now this is a complete side note but i just think it's interesting as we talk about how their story is our story five verses later so this is a powerful moment i mean if we are making a movie about the gospels this is the moment when we cue the soaring music and we jesus rides off into the sunset and then we fight the forces of evil but five verses later after peter has this powerful moment with jesus where he says because of your faith and how great you how great your faith is like i'm going to build my movement on you and and this group of people five verses later jesus ends up rebuking peter right peter messes it up five verses later and jesus calls him satan and tells him to get behind it this is how peter is a very volatile figure right he all throughout the gospels he's going from the guy who has the most faith to the guy who misses it more than anyone else right when the when they come after jesus when 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 the when when um when the romans come after jesus he's the first one to pull out his sword and chop somebody's ear off but he's also the first one to be like what i I don't what i did not have a sword i don't even know this jesus guy i think you found another there was another fisherman anyway um yeah i lost my place here i i shouldn't get off it but i really think this is interest this is an interesting part of peter's story we read the stories of the the early christians and the early disciples and we often in reverse read stories of super saints they're just broken people like us trying to figure out what in the world it means to follow jesus and their story is our story they have 
brokenness and doubts and shortcomings. And yet, in spite of it, what makes them the heroes of the faith, what makes them the people that the Jesus movement is founded upon, is the fact that they continue to put one foot in front of the other and follow the way of Jesus in spite of their brokenness. And, and, and in this moment with, with Peter, Jesus proclaims that I will resist darkness through his community of people, and I will set the world right through a community of people. And then Jesus dies and returns to heaven, and we pick up the story once again in the book of Acts. So just quickly, like, as a, as a, as a recap, so the Old Testament is setting the stage for Jesus arriving, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are telling the story, the Gospels tell the story of Jesus from different perspectives. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have a lot of overlap. In fact, Mark most likely is the earliest Gospel text. Matthew um, and Luke pull on mark's gospel most likely they also seem to pull. this is getting a little academic but i'll just tell you because you seem like you might like to know um there's also another document called the q how cool is that the q document and the and they think that because there seems to be another document that the gospels are all pulling on so we think we lost another resource out there called the q which is why it's called the q maybe question oh, what q stands for i should have figured that out before i told you about it um anyway the q document um it may not stand for anything maybe just question um yeah so the q document um is so matthew mark luke and john and then john's gospel is doing its own thing right john's gospel is so different than all the other matthew mark luke and john it's completely different but it's 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 powerful what he proclaims about jesus helps us see jesus in a, in a completely different light like he's not it doesn't contradict the first three gospels but he just helps us see jesus differently so then we pivot, and, and Acts really marks a, a marked change. And the rest of the New Testament, from this way forward, really begins to tell, tell the story of the Jesus movement and gives us a glimpse into their, their shortcomings and a glimpse into kind of how they end up getting formed. And so, so we pivot, we pivot to, to Acts, Acts chapter, uh, of the, the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And, and Jesus, at the beginning of Acts, he appears to his disciples after he's died and after he raises again. And, and when he comes back, he once again uses the same word, basileia, kingdom, rule, domain. And he talks about the domain, the rule of God, and he promises the spirit. So Acts chapter 1, beginning of verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time? You listen to these words. Jesus has died. He is risen again. He had risen again. He has corrected his disciples a million times when they miss what he's trying to do. And check this out. The disciples say, so when they come back together, they asked him, Lord, just, just clarification, because you never really would answer this question clearly before you died, and we think you might go away again. So when is the time when you're going to restore Israel to be a kingdom again? When are the good old days? When is David coming back? Just, just to be clear, when, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Because we're not clear in this. And Jesus replies, I think he's just punting. He's like, I'm tired of answering this question. He says, look, it's not for you to know the time or the period that the Father, and the Father set this by his own authority. Can we just leave that? Like, it's, it's not for you to know. And then Jesus says this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You, you people who walked with me and hung out with me, you will be the witnesses of what it looks like when the reign of God, when the domain of God comes to earth. 
because the life that Jesus lived is what that looks like. A life of love and a life of joy and a life of peacemaking. That's what it looks like when God's reign comes to earth. And this talk of kingdom and spirit and witness are all central to what becomes the church, what becomes the Jesus movement. And followers of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, become witnesses to God's reign or God's rule or God's domain coming to earth. And what they, are witness, what they are witnesses to is a radical movement of love that they experienced and they saw in Jesus. A Jesus who reaches out to those who are on the margins of society. And instead of casting them off, instead of casting off the very people that religious leaders said were unworthy, Jesus invites them to the table. And Jesus seems less concerned. This is, I, I, if you take nothing else away from the Gospels, I think this is important to take away. Jesus seems less concerned with the disciples getting it, right? When, when at the end, they still seem to be missing it. He seems less concerned with the disciples getting it and more concerned that they live it, right? He's like, look, you don't need to know the hour or the time or what God has planned, but be my witnesses. Live into this new reality that you've experienced. Jesus is less concerned that we believe the right thing or that we check all the right dots and he's more concerned that we live into the new reality of God's kingdom, which is crashing into earth. And then we get a glimpse of what the, this Jesus movement, this Jesus community looks like in, in Acts chapter 2. We read in Acts 2, beginning with verse 42, and if you've been around the table for a while, you've heard this verse over and over again because it's central to our identity, right? Like we would, we would refer to ourselves as an Acts 2 church. If you were to say, what type of church are you? I mean, I probably wouldn't, but if we were to have a deep theological conversation, we kept digging deeper and deeper and say, we're an Acts 2 church. Anyway, they did, Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, right? They, they had these, these teachings, these stories about Jesus, these early letters that they gathered around trying to figure out what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship or, or community would be another way of saying it, to the breaking of bread, to the Eucharist, and to prayers, right? That was like what the early church, that was their, 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 their foundation, right? They'd gather around the scriptures, they'd break bread, they'd do community, and they would pray together. But, but as, we all, this, but as the story always goes, God calls together a people and he blesses them, but it's always for a purpose. And so in Acts, we continue reading, in verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they would sell all their possessions and goods and distribute them to the proceeds to anyone as they had need. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their foods with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And this is, this is, this is, this is fascinating. Praising God and having the goodwill. What if, what if, like, people, what if we were opened up the times tomorrow and said that, that Christians had the goodwill of all the people because of the way their generous heart? And day by day, the Lord added to their numbers and those who were being saved. I, I was reading this week, I, I am fascinated by the earliest church, and so I will read any book I can find. And I'm reading a book called Destroying the Gods, which is uh, kind of a, a, a really deep dive into the early church. It's a good book. Um, and uh, in, in Destroying the Gods, there's this line that they pulled from one of the early, uh, from an early author who's writing about the church. 
and, it, and they were talking about, they said they don't share their wives, but they share their food with other people. That, that was the thing that kind of differentiated them from the broader culture. They don't share their wives, but they share their food. Uh, that's not the worst thing that can be said about you. Um, <laughs> that's how they were known, right? They would share their food. They would share anything they would have with anyone that was in need. And this Jesus movement begins with this group of people who are sold out to living a life of love. And what we discover it, it, over the book of Acts, so Acts begins, Acts 1 and 2 begins with a group of people hanging out in an upper room, about 120 people who are hanging out in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to come and to rest on them. And when the Spirit comes and fills them and rests on them, they go forth into the world and begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And what ends up happening, the book of Acts is about a 30-year time period from Acts 1 where they begin in Jerusalem. It begins in Acts 1 in Jerusalem, and within 30 years, we found that they've already spread to the Roman to, to Rome, like the capital city of the Roman Empire. And this Jesus movement begins to explode. In the rest of the God, or the rest of the New Testament, you know, books like Corinthians, which is a letter written to people in Corinth, and Ephesus, or in Ephesians, which is a a, 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 a book written to people or a, a letter written to people in Ephesus right? this, this Jesus movement begins to spread over the entire Roman world and what drives it is, is this commitment to, to a Jesus who lived a radical life of love the other thing that's fascinating about the early Christians is that they were, they were uh, the, this book I was reading referred to them as a bookish religion Right? They gathered around these texts because it wasn't like love meant something. Love is such a, a love can be a, a very mushy word, right? For them, love had teeth. It meant sacrifice. It meant giving of themselves. It meant even at the risk of their, the loss of their own life that they would lay down their life for another person. And God's rule is not spread through power. Right? This is always my concern when we, when we use language about the kingdom of God when we use language about the kingdom of God, it, it tends to have the, the connotations of power, right? That we, and, and freaks people out, right? You, if, if you're a secular person and you, you hear people talking about Jesus ruling and kingdom and all this kind of language, you think theocracy. But Jesus never rules through power. It never, his movement doesn't spread through fat power. In fact, it's the opposite of power, but it's through a group of people embodying a radical different way of living, right? That's how the Jesus movement spreads. It's by people giving of themselves and sacrificing, not by people exercising power. In fact, the, the, the Jesus story, his story ends by the powers crucifying him on a cross and him willingly giving up his own life. That's, that's what it looks like when God's kingdom comes to earth. And on the other side of resurrection, on the other side of resurrection, God is still calling a people through whom he'll bless the world. And God's new way of living, God's rule, God's domain is spread through a spirit-empowered community that we call the church. And, and, and we read these first four acts of the story, you know, creation and fall and, and Israel's story um, and, and um, Jesus, and these are all like backward-looking, right? We, we look like, oh, that was a great story. But the fifth act of the story, it's still being written. This, this is still being written, and we are invited to be a part of this Jesus movement. That's what I'm committed to. Right? People, people have all kinds of reasons that they go to church and do religious things. Right? What commits me, what calls me back, why I do what I do is because I'm radically committed to the movement of Jesus. 
And God, through Jesus' followers, is establishing God's domain on earth. N.T. Wright says it this way. He said, those in whom the Spirit comes to live are God's new temple. Before, in, in in the Hebrew Scriptures, God's Spirit rested in the temple. God was in the temple. But in the New Testament, we become the new temples. And where God's Spirit, right, says, where God's Spirit lives is the new temple. And they are individually and corporately the places where heaven and earth meet. When we, empowered by the Spirit, live into the calling and God's, the, the calling that God has placed on our lives, we become the place where heaven and earth crash together, where God's rule and domain enters into the present reality. And what we find throughout the New Testament is this tension between the already and the not yet. God's rule has begun but has not yet been fulfilled. And we see that God is on a mission to restore and renew all of creation, right? It's not just to save souls so that we can someday be evacuated to heaven, but it is the renewal and restoration of all things. This is what the church is about. And one of the greatest sins the church has done has made, or one of the greatest sins the church has committed is the individualization and the privatization of, our, of, of God's mission in the world. It becomes all about us. Mark 16, 5 says, this, or 16, 15 says it this way, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole of creation. And Jesus did not come simply to save your soul, but to redeem everything. And this mission that God is on, he is looking, God is looking for people to join him on this mission. But he's, God is not looking for Lone Ranger Christians, but is looking for a community of people to embody the way of Jesus. So here's how we'd summarize the, the church. Right? We, we, in one sermon in 20 minutes, we've essentially tried to encapsulate the entire history of the church and the, the New Testament. Here's how we, if, if we're going to summarize it, it would be this. The kingdom is thread spread through a spirit-empowered community who joins God on mission in the world. And this is why our church is committed to following Jesus in community. This is why over and over we'll, we'll ask you, are you in a community group? Have you joined a community group? Have you heard about community groups? Are you in community? Is there anyone in your life who has permission to ask you difficult questions? Right? Is the, we, this is important because this is how we grow. This is how we become followers of Jesus. This is how we live into the purposes and callings that God has placed in our lives. It's through the context of And when the Spirit comes, the disciples disperse into the world with generous hearts, and the way that they live brings goodwill to all the people. And what takes place in Acts, like I said, is this 30-year kind of history of the church, and and then it ends up spreading, and over the next 300 years, it, it, it spreads throughout the entire empire. But their common life together always forced them outward. And I want to just talk for a quick moment of what this early Christian community looked like. One of the things that I discovered, I'm always discovering new bits and pieces about what this community looked like, but one of the things I discovered in, in this book, Destroying the Gods, uh, is, is that one of the common practices in the Roman world was infanticide. And essentially, it was called exposure. And so you'll, you'll occasionally read comments about the early church that will say, and they didn't expose their children, right? They, they had wives and kids like other people, but they didn't expose their children. And, and, and in this period in history, when the early church is coming to be, it was commonplace that if you had a child you did not want, right, for whatever reason, because of defect or because you had a girl and you wanted a boy, you would place this child in a highly trafficked area in hopes that someone would come and pick this child up. Um, and often the dog, wild dogs would get to the kid first, 
or the elements, uh, heat or cold. Like, this is what common practice. And, 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 and it was particularly impacted young or women more than men. And what happened was often what would happen is uh, slave traders or uh, brothel owners would come through and pick up these children and begin to raise them as their own kids so then they could put them into slavery or to work in a brothel. And, and when you go back and read ancient documents from this period in time, the only people, the only people you hear that are speaking out against this is, is early Christians and Jews. Like the, no, there are no other documents of anyone else speaking out against this. But what we find is that the early Christians didn't just speak against this practice, but they began to go and to scoop up these children and began to raise them as their own. Right? It is more than just talk but they put their talk into practice at, at their own expense and at their own, I mean, it, it's not easy. I know, I'm eight months into raising a kid. It's not easy, and that was just one, just one. But they would raise these kids as their own. Right? This, the movement of love that begins with Jesus is transformative to the world in which they lived. And, and 300 years later, when, when Constantine comes to power, um, and he makes Christian, Christianity the, the, the religion of the Roman Empire. And there's all these problems that, are, that happen then. Um, but one of the first things he does because of the influence of the early church is he outlaws, um, he outlaws this practice of exposure, right, because of the influence of the church. They, they, they did not just talk about love, but they put it into practice. And what's interesting is that Christians gravitated towards the care and protection of the most vulnerable. So this is early on that we're reading about the outlaw or about the protection of, of, uh, of, of kids who've been left to be picked up. But 600 years later, we find it is, it is Christian churches and bishops who are creating the first medical clinics for people who can't afford medical care. This is what it means to be a Christian, is that we care for the least and the most vulnerable. And whether that's those suffering from a plague, right, we've talked about this before, right, they, would, they, would, they would care for people who were dying of really infectious diseases with no concern for their own health because they believed the God who raised Jesus from the dead had their back. Or whether it was caring for babies who had been left in the elements, Christians can always be found spreading love and grace to places where no one else will go. And the church at its best is a community of Jesus followers who are empowered by the Spirit, who join God's mission in the world. The way we summarize it around here is we say often that we are a family on mission. We are a family on mission. God is on a mission to heal and bless and restore all of creation, and we want to join God as a community, as a family, as part of that. And all too often, we make our relationship we make our relationship with Jesus about us and our spirituality and our health and our growth. And those aren't bad things, right? God wants you to, to grow spiritually. But, but if, we are not, if we are not moving outward, we will become stale and static. And we will, I'm, I'm trying to think the word I'm looking for, we will become putrid. If we keep it all for ourselves, we will rot from the inside out. And, and ch the church, at its best, always drives us, always invites new people to become part of our community. 
A sign of maturity is a community that diversifies. And if you only spend time with people who are like you, you will not grow and mature at the same rate. You will not grow and mature at the same rate if you're not in a community of people. If you're just always with people like you, you will not grow spiritually at the same way if you hang out with people different than you. This is why the church is always inviting new people in. It is not about us. It is about what God is doing in the world, and God is always inviting everyone to the table. From Acts to Jude, we are given a glimpse of this growing and changing Jesus movement that starts out in Jerusalem and spreads to Rome and to Ephesus and Corinth, and it's messy. They get in fights. They argue with one another. They disagree with one another. And some people think the others get it wrong. And people, some people think that freedom in Christ means you can do anything you want. And others are like, no, 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 you totally missed the point. And yet, in spite of it all, they continue putting one foot in front of the other and putting God's love on display to the world. And 2,000 years later, the Jesus movement empowered by the Spirit, still witnesses to God's rule, God's domain, God's kingdom crashing into the present reality. And we continue to gather around the apostles' teaching and gather around God's table and bless our world through generous love. But the mark of the church is always active participation. It's never simply consumption. In our world that is rampant with both consumerism and individualism, where we are always trying to see what can we get for ourselves, if if that is the posture you take towards faith, you miss the point, and you will never be fully fulfilled. It's not about you. God has called you and blessed you for a purpose. But here's the good news. The story that begins 2,000 years ago and continues today throughout the world is the story that is still being written. And in our world of uncertainty and chaos, and in a world of inequality and injustice, some of you in this room are feeling the anxiety of the injustice in our world acutely. In a world of injustice, God is still moving and acting. And he invites the church, he invites you to join on a mission of healing and redeeming of all of creation. And at our best, the church has never been, at our best, the church has never operated from a position of power. In fact, the moments of power is when we are at our worst. But at our best, we have operated from a position of irresistible love. A love that overcomes the forces of darkness and chaos that try to bring division and confusion to our world. And this is what begins in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 when the spirit, when the Ruach of God goes across the water, he begins to bring life from the chaos. And God's spirit is still moving and God's spirit is still bringing life from darkness and chaos in our world. And we are invited to participate in that movement. And this is a movement of love, but it always begins with a group of people who are gathered around the scripture, who break bread together and open themselves up to God's work in their midst. Church was never meant to be a spectator sport. It always requires active participation. 
And so this morning, I want to leave you with this challenge. To those of you who have sat on the sidelines, thinking someone else will take up this, this charge, whatever it might be, if it is, if it is to engage in a work of compassion or work of justice or of advocacy or serving in some way at the local church, I would encourage you to join the story. Join a community group. Begin to serve. Find ways to radically love your neighbors and invite others on this journey with you. Because when God's Spirit moves, it always invites everyone to the front. Let's pray. God, as I walk through these texts, as I walk through the story, I find myself once again becoming convicted. I find your spirit beginning to tug on my heart and beginning to ask, how are we living into this calling? How are we living into this mission? And I pray that this week that, that you would begin to open our eyes in the ways that you are working in our world, these places that your spirit are moving where we, are not, we don't even have the eyes to see yet. I pray that you would open our eyes and help us to see the move of your spirit and help us to join in on that mission. In Jesus' name.